Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. To get a sense of where oil is going to go or could go in a world that has heightened geopolitical tensions coming out of the Mideast, we welcome Dr. Ellen Wald. She's president of Transversal Consulting. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's global energy sector and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor based in Jacksonville. Dr. Wald, thanks so much for joining us. Again, looking at uh, oil over the last couple of days since the news broke out, we certainly saw a move up in oil, but perhaps not as much as some traders had been thinking or some observers had been thinking. What's the market telling us? Yeah, I think what the market is telling us right now is that uh, war is a very unlikely possibility. And we can see that, that prices went up after the event happened. We saw a rise of about really less than 4% for Brent. Uh, Brent was up. And that tells us that markets believe that some sort of temporary disruption to oil supplies or oil transportation was likely, but that some kind of big military uh, conflagration, some kind of, of all-out war situation is really still a very unlikely possibility. Uh, otherwise, the market, the, the price of oil would have gone up much more and been much more sustained rise. In fact, we've really seen prices come back down today. Brent was up uh, about a little over 70 much earlier this morning, but it's since come down uh, quite a bit as I think people realize that there's a lot of rhetoric going back and forth, but that uh, really the, the, the tensions are really in this, in this rhetoric, that there's very little military activity. And in fact, one of the interesting developments is that we've seen is that uh, the Saudis are sending their defense minister, who is the younger brother of uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, to the United States to try to de-escalate uh, these tensions. And that's one of the reasons is that Saudi Arabia and, and UAE particularly, they don't want to get involved in a war uh, because any kind of military action against Iran is going to involve have to involve them. And they don't want to be part of any, even a coalition against this. And so uh, really, uh, you know, they like to kind of beat the the war drum, but when push comes to shove, they don't want a war. What about Iraq uh, voting to kick U.S. troops out of the nation? How could that potentially play into uh, some of what's going on? So this is a really interesting development. I think we need to look at exactly what uh, did actually happen in the Iraqi parliament. One of the important things to remember is that this is a temporary government that, that Iraq has. Their prime minister and, and the government resigned uh, several weeks ago uh, due to all of the political unrest that had been going on there, particularly the fact that that, that particular government was seen as very much in favor of Iran and supporting Iran's influence in the region, and there have been massive protests against that. So what we what we did see, from what I understand, the vote by the Iraqi parliament was basically to ask the Iraqi government to cancel assistance to the U.S.-led anti-ISIS coalition uh, to expel foreign troops from Iraq, file a complaint about the U.S. and investigate the U.S. bombings. And that this isn't a binding, um, a binding uh, legislation in any way. It's really kind of a, a resolution. But apparently it's, they really can't kick the U.S. out uh, because the security agreement that 
that the U.S. and Iraq have after the, the war means that they really need to give, I think, at least a year's notice to actually leave. So this is really a symbolic way of saying, um, you know, we, we don't approve of what you did. But keep in mind also that um, Kurdish um, element, Kurdish uh, members of parliament and also Sunni members of parliament, I think, were not even really uh, present or included in this. So it was really a reflection of the elements of parliament who support Iran. Ellen, what is the... What do you think will happen in terms of retaliation? I think that's kind of the next step here. People are kind of, you know, sensing when will Iran retaliate? How will it retaliate? And maybe how will this might escalate? What is your best guess at this point? Well, that's, that's really the, the big question on everyone's mind is, is what's the response going to be? Are we going to see some kind of drone strike uh, like we saw on uh, Aramco facilities? I mean, that was really kind of a stunning event that we saw in September because a lot of people didn't believe that Iran had the capability to do that or the know-how uh, or the knowledge, of, the detailed knowledge of uh, Aramco facilities. So it's certainly possible that we might see an attempt at something like that. There could be a site attack, uh, we really need to take into consideration what Iran is capable of at this point. Uh, clearly, closing the streets of Hormuz would be a major deal. Uh, most people do consider that or would consider that an act of war. But keep in mind that also harms Iran because they also rely on the streets of Hormuz to uh, continue their illicit oil trade. So that would also harm their ability to make any money off of their oil. Uh, one of the things I think we re- need to be really careful about, though, is that there's a lot of traffic in the Persian Gulf right now, even more. And the previous attacks we saw on tankers in the region were really just confined to small tankers carrying crude oil products. But if we did see an attack on an actual crude oil tanker, that could cause not just uh, an issue militarily, but it could also cause an environmental disaster. And mm-hmm. so those are the kinds of things we have to be really careful about. Ellen Wald, uh, thank you so much for being with us, as always, and sharing your insights. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, uh, joining us to give us some perspective. Well, the rhetoric between the U.S. and Iran is getting increasingly heated, but you wouldn't know it if you took a look at equities. Actually, on the day, the Nasdaq has now turned marginally positive, up nine-tenths of of what one-tenth of a percentage point, and you're seeing uh, the S&P just barely negative, which raises a question. How concerning is it? that traders seem to be completely complacent to the idea of an escalating conflict in what has been described as a tinderbox of the Middle East. Joining us now is Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Investors, uh, which oversees more than $80 billion in equities and joins us here in our interactive broker studio. So Phil, does that concern you, the complacency? So the Dow Jones was down uh, 300 points or so on Friday. So, and I think that was appropriate. And then Waking up this morning, the futures at 5 a.m., we were down another couple hundred points. And I think what's happened over the course of the last few hours that investors have actually thought through this. What are the Iranians going to do? Are they going to declare war on the United States? That would be suicidal. Uh, Do they have the ability to have a deleterious impact on the energy market? Uh, You've got something like 20 or 25% of the world's crude 
flows through the Straits of Hormuz. So could uh, that turn into uh, a problem from us? Absolutely. But we're in a very different place than they were in the 70s. Uh, we, we, you know, we're, we're now generating 12.5 million barrels a day. We're the largest oil producer in the world. I've heard this argument that basically Iran doesn't have that many tools to retaliate against the U.S. That said, if they retaliate in any form, which seems highly likely given their threats and given their past trajectory, what's the risk on the opposite side that President Trump has some sort of massive response uh, to sort of prove a point and, and sort of leads leads things uh, from there? Well, I mean, it's a fair point, Lisa, because he said publicly that that if you do something, we're going to have a disproportionate response, and could that escalate into a you know a military conflict? Absolutely. Do I think we'll win that? Sure, but but uh, from from a, an uncertainty standpoint, and I think that's the point you're trying to get to. Does that create a potential air pocket for the market? Could stocks be down you know four or five percent over the space of a couple of weeks as this as this you know sort of plays out? And the answer to that's absolutely yes. Uh, but but uh, at the end of the day, do we think that the United States ends up on top in, in, in this scenario? I think the answer to that question is also yes. And I think investors are sort of looking through that in terms of what are the underlying fundamentals of the market? And, you know, could we, you know, you know could we see a couple of percent down? Look, we're up 40 percent since Christmas Eve a year ago. I mean, that's phenomenal. And if we give up 5% here, okay, fine. It's probably healthy. It, it, it washes out some weak hands, and then we start to work higher again. So, Phil, you absolutely killed it with your bullish equity call in 2019. Uh, again, market up significant 29% in the calendar year. What does the market do for an encore in 2020? Well, in a word, higher. Uh, not we're not going to be up forty percent or twenty nine percent again. We're, we're sort of in the eight to ten percent neighborhood. We think we get up to about the thirty five hundred level, uh, which would be on a total return basis about ten percent from where we started the year. Uh, we think there will be potentially increased volatility, and and certainly developments here in the Middle East would qualify as as a source of, of instability. Uh, we've got this election coming up. Uh, uh, th- that certainly could be a problem. Do we do we consummate the China deal uh, the way we think we will? Uh, we've got a positive view on that, but certainly you've got no way of knowing if there are going to be any fits and starts here. So there's any number of things that uh, uh, could create roadblocks here that could create a little volatility in the meantime. When you talk about air pockets lower and that things should continue to grind higher despite those air pockets, what would you be buying if there is some sort of significant decline? Sure. So I'll take a look at some of the things we did uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, We've gotten more aggressive in domestic small cap. Uh, We've gotten more uh, aggressive in domestic large cap value versus growth, took some profits in growth. Value has underperformed growth by something like 11 percentage points over the last year. And then emerging markets. Emerging markets have underperformed the S&P by 1,200 basis points in the last year. Uh, This China-U.S. trade deal, that's going to be good for China. What's going on in the energy market right now with higher energy prices, that's going to be good for both Brazil and Russia. Well, I've just mentioned three of the major economies that comprise the emerging markets, uh, an index that we just said is underperformed by 1,200 basis points over the last year. So, So if I've got some fresh money to play with, domestic small cap, domestic large cap value, and emerging markets are three areas that I'd look to. Well, in 2019, Phil, the, as I think back at the performance that we had in the equity markets in 2019, it was essentially all multiple expansion. We didn't have a whole lot of earnings growth. How 
critical is it that we get the high single digit, close to 10% earnings growth that we're seeing analysts are expecting the S&P this year? So what, what happened last year in terms of earnings was not unexpected. You think about that we had about a 25 or 30% earnings increase, 18 over 17, largely because of the fiscal policy changes. Last year should have been a year of consolidation from an earnings standpoint. We were up sort of small single digit. We'll probably be end up, you know, three to five percent, something like that. This year, we think we're going to be up, you know, maybe eight percent, something like that. It's not going to be phenomenal, but the, we're going to get more multiple expansion. And the reason for that is core PC inflation sitting here at 1.6 percent. Benchmark 10-year Treasury yields are below 1.8 percent. In that kind of an environment, multiple should comfortably be at 18 or 19 times earnings. So, so you know, investors that look at and say, well, the average multiple on stocks over the last, you know, 50, 70, 100 years, 14 or 15 times earnings, we're sitting at 17 times now, therefore the market's overvalued. That argument is flawed. And the reason it's flawed is that the market does not trade at some multiple based upon what history suggests. It's a function, an inverse mathematical relationship between where interest rates and inflation are on the one hand and where price earnings ratios are on the other. With the, so with benign interest rates and inflation, we should get more multiple expansion over the course of the next year. Just real quick here, what role does the Fed play? How much more, uh, more juice does the Fed give U.S. equities if it cuts rates again? Fed's done. Fed's on hold. We've seen the last of the Fed last year. Uh, we will not see them change interest rates in our view for the rest of this year. Upper band of the funds rate stays at one spot seven five. Okay, but you don't think that it's going to, do you think that if they were to cut rates, that would help stocks? Well, it, it, it would. I don't know what the justification for that would be because we do expect that there will be a reacceleration of both economic growth and corporate earnings growth in the back half of the year. The first quarter is going to be a problem, all right? Just, just to be clear, the, the whole Boeing shutdown situation is going to have a derivative impact throughout the economy. Normal first quarter seasonal stuff. We've got some, you know, some lagging stuff going with China trade. But as we get through that, as we get to the middle of the year, in our view, we're going to start to see economic growth and corporate earnings growth start to accelerate. Phil Orlando, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you being in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Investors. You know, after a 29% increase in the S&P 500 in 2019, investors are looking for some places that might offer some better risk reward opportunity. One of those areas has been emerging markets. We want to talk emerging markets. We talked to our good friend, Eric Fine, portfolio manager for emerging markets, fixed income at Van Eck Global, uh, based here in New York City. Uh, Eric joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Eric, before we just get to a broad kind of emerging markets view as we head into 2020, what does the last 72 hours in terms of geopolitical risk coming out of the Mideast, how does that factor into your modeling, your calculus as you just think about, you know, emerging markets? Sure. Well, uh, hi, Paul. Hi, Lisa. Happy New Year. Thanks. So, so the, um, uh, the, I'd say the, the first thing is there are a lot of emerging market uh, countries uh, and companies in the region that issue. And that's where I'm more comfortable saying that there could be an impact. Um, and I would say that uh, the countries that are uh, the most subject to this are um, Iraq, 
um, which is now being threatened by sanctions. The bonds are down maybe another two points today. And yields aren't that high there, right? That's the thing. For a lot of these, um, for a lot of countries that are ultimately dependent on some bottom-up development that can change quickly, um, um, you often see the last price before the event as being a generic price for risk in a low-yield world. Oh, it's this rating. It's got this yield. The yield's a little too high. I'm going to own it. Not, oh, it's got this bottom-up specific fundamental. So I think sanctions risk in Iraq um, uh, uh, does is, is a real issue. And uh, I mean, this really started with the Iraq war and, and the, the sort of opening that that creates to Iran, let me put it that way, the natural. Um, I'd say Saudi is, is another country that could be affected by this in that it's a regular issuer. And it would seem reasonable to me to expect Iran to leverage uh, Yemen uh, over over uh, uh, Saudi, that was uh, the peace talks look like to me like they've broken down. Um, and there, I think the issue is that Saudi's a regular issuer. They've got big fiscal deficits, um, and the yields are really low. You have three percent yield, so a lot of this isn't priced. So regionally, I th I think there are some very specific implications that are important and that are generally adverse. And I think the the main names names national names would be Iraq and uh, uh, and Saudi. Um, um, uh, in terms of so anything more broadly. Uh, um, I would say it's uh, it's it's a bit of a stretch. I think you really have to. I, first, I think it, you, one should be reluctant to hang an entire portfolio thesis based on developments in the Middle East. You know, it's just really, really tricky. <laughs> right? you, you, yeah. um, and uh, um, and second, central banks are so activated now um, that it's arguably a positive. Um, and third, I caution that this is what happened. As dramatic as it is, it is a line cross. Um, is part of. Of, of broader trends that have already started, the borders that existed are being rethought, um, and this and this didn't just start last week. Okay, arguably positive uh, because it could potentially ignite the central banks out there to stimulate further. Is that the idea? Um, it's a reminder that to, to the extent that central banks were getting a little emboldened by growth or were at risk of it, I think it's a little too early to say that they were getting emboldened by, by growth, but to the extent that that was a scenario a month or two from now, maybe that's put back a few more months. I don't think it's a, a complete, I don't think you're going to see statements from central banks on this, but it's a, it, it, we will be reminded of central bank forbearance. One of the big conundrums of 2020 is how much further the Federal Reserve and the ECB can, can stimulate global risk markets. And I have to wonder, you know, doesn't at a certain point further rate cuts signal that the economy is even worse than people expected, and it doesn't really give that much of a boost to uh, sort of the relative valuations and risk assets? Wow, the third question, and we're into this issue <laughs> of the reversal rate. I think it's the hugest question, and it's going to be a question we're going to be asking for years, is are we at the end? Are we? Uh, is this experiment over? Um, I would, you know, I, I, I call myself a recovering economist, so my, and, and I'm going to give a, you know, that kind of economics type of answer, which it depends, right? It depends on the situation. I is would there say like it's an Economists uh, Anonymous? There should be. Sorry, there should be. After the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, there should be. I think it's any um, bar in Midtown, you know, sitting on the end. <laughs> the, I think the issue is clearest in Europe, where you've seen a very dramatic increase in the balance sheet and really no transmission into growth. It's murkier in, uh, in, in the U.S., where you can see some success, but um, Europe has a uh, uh, Europe is really where I think the, that issue is coming uh, to the fore. One way of putting your question is, or one way of answering your question is, yeah, some of the central banks, uh, maybe all of the developed ones, but certainly I think Europe's at the forefront of the problems. Um, uh, they either hike rates 
and, uh, um, and bankrupt governments, or they uh, uh, cut rates and bankrupt financial systems, which are contingent liability of governments. So that's a way of describing the conundrum. If they keep interest rates low, the financial banking pension system, the financial system, um, um, doesn't earn enough to remain solvent, arguably, right? Or that's a challenge long term. I'm just a big picture theoretical stuff. Um, and, uh, um, but if rates are raised to a level that that the banking system, for example, in Europe is probably lobbying for, um, then government borrowing costs become a real issue, particularly for the peripheral higher indebted countries. Now, this is very theoretical, not really right, what we do day to day in the Let's end, dive but down yeah, in the weeds. I think it's a great question. What are you, what are you playing in 2020? What's your highest conviction idea? Um, highest conviction idea is two groups of ideas. One is, I think it is going to be a bumpy road, par partially because of the reasons Lisa mentioned longer term, so maybe, you know, second, third quarter. And one of the problems I have is a lot of people think what I'm about to say is that we'll have a good quarter or so and then, then it'll be tricky. But one group of ideas is ones that, that we think should last the whole year. And they're similar to what we, what we did last year. Things where we're waking up in the morning and not thinking about these sorts of questions, where we're not thinking about Middle East developments, we're not thinking about oil up or down or rates up or down. So Argentina comes to mind. We're waking up in the morning and following Argentina. We think there's too much pessimism. The government's basically marked friendly and as and the biggest determinant I remind people the biggest determinant of present value in a dicey not or, or in a potential default situation is non-payment when you're and that's when you should be discounting a zero payment at 20% and so you're losing a lot of money as long as they're staying current which all indications are they plan on it um, um, I think that's a very very good situation but again bottom-up, uncorrelated, we're waking up looking, doing our day job. Um, that's one. Uruguay, another really interesting local market, not big part of the index, but we have significant exposure there. You're getting around 10% yields, um, low and declining inflation, and a new government elected to deal with their one problem, fiscal. But again, I'm waking up in the morning looking for the next few quarters, are they dealing with their fiscal programs? So those are some of the unusual ones that could last for years. Ukraine's another one. IMF program. Yeah. The more mainstream ones that could benefit um, but may not last the whole year are Indonesia, growth reform, South Africa, a lot of bad news priced in, and Brazil really can't say enough good things about Brazil. Eric Sorry. Fine, uh, wonderful, wonderful synopsis. Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, uh, some of the picks here. Eric Fine, Portfolio Manager of Emerging Markets, Fixed Income Strategy at Vanek Global, based in New York, uh, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. As time continues, we are piecing together the movie that is Carlos Ghosn's life. Joining us now is Alan Katz, financial investigations team leader for Bloomberg News, uh, based in Paris. And Alan, uh, Bloomberg put out a piece this morning really detailing everything we know about uh, his arrest, his 100 days in, in solitary confinement, through to his escape from Japan. Can you give us a sense of sort of the, the narrative here as it unfolds? So the way it worked with Carlos Ghosn was that he was arrested back in November of 2018. And as you mentioned, uh, he spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. They kept sort of releasing him and then rearresting him. Uh, and it was a very sort of confusing period. Uh, but things got a lot more pressure packed uh, in December of this year. So he'd already been either in jail or under house arrest for, for more than a year. And uh, 
this December, he found out that his trial was likely be, to be delayed, possibly until 2021, sort of leaving him in a legal limbo for at least another year. Uh, Japanese prosecutors had begun interviewing uh, some of his family members, including his son, Anthony, uh, who they also accused of having been involved in some of the financial shenanigans they claimed that uh, Carlos Ghosn uh, was involved in. Uh, and he didn't, there didn't seem to be any way out. And that, that appears to be sort of the real motive for him to leave now. But the other issue was an issue of opportunity, right? So when in any sort of spy caper, you know, Ocean's Eleven type scenario, you need to have sort of that moment when the time is right to jump. And uh, it appears that he'd been preparing this for months, uh, dealing with people uh, who've been specialized for decades in, you know, exfiltrating uh, executives who are be, have been kidnapped or re- recovering abducted children or fighting on various sides of militia during a civil war. Um, and he'd been dealing with them for months, but one of the things that came up just now was that uh, there was a combination of it was a, a holiday period in Japan, so government offices were going to be closed for several days at least. And one of the main groups that had been sort of following Gon every time he would leave his apartment was were, were a series of private investigators paid for by Nissan. Gon's lawyer had protested this was violating his rights, and those uh, investigators appears to have backed appear to have backed off. And so that gave Gon this moment, this sort of golden chance that he had to take or felt he had to take uh, if he was ever going to get out of Japan. And so he did. Uh, And amazingly, was successful in doing so. Yeah, it's just an amazing story. So, Alan, I think the next big piece of news is uh, Mr. Gohan is saying he's going to have a press conference, I guess, in Lebanon sometime this week. Give us the details there, what we know. Uh, He's going to speak in Lebanon on Wednesday uh, at 3 p.m. local time. uh, And he claims, or through his lawyers mostly, he claims that uh, he is going to use this to try to press his case for why uh, the allegations against him are untrue, politically motivated, part of a vendetta against him, both by uh, people within Nissan, also uh, from the Japanese government, uh, in large part because of his effort to merge Nissan with uh, Renault. Uh, as you may know, Renault, the French car maker, owns 43% Nissan. Nissan owns 15% of Renault, but in this alliance that they've had for the last 20 years, Renault has essentially had the upper hand for most of the time since it, it essentially saves Nissan from bankruptcy when they when they first did the deal. Um, so this press conference is going to be go, essentially Gone's side of the story. Now he's had he had one um, video press conference that he did while he was uh, still under house arrest in Japan, which supposedly was going to unveil all sorts of new information that was going to be terrible for Nissan and great for Carlos Ghosn. Didn't really come up with much new, so it's not clear, uh, at least not clear to me, that that there's necessarily going to be a lot of new information or a lot of really exculpatory information that, that Ghosn is going to come out with on Wednesday, but it's certainly going to be exciting. <laughs> it's certainly going to be exciting, exactly right. Alan Katz, thanks so much for joining us. Alan is a financial investor team leader for Bloomberg News uh, in our Paris Bureau with this fascinating story continuing to unfold. I, I'm really looking forward to see what uh, Mr. Gohan says at this press conference on Wednesday. Yeah. Maybe we get some more details. As well as who plays Carlos Cohn in the upcoming <laughs> Hollywood right. biopic that we can expect. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.